Thriving in divorce and beyond means not having to worry about the safety of your children when it comes to co-parenting. With alcohol abuse on the rise, many co-parents are turning to the system committed to providing proof, protection, and peace of mind. Soberlink's alcohol monitoring system is the most convenient, reliable, and reasonable way for a parent to provide evidence that they are not drinking during parenting time. Soberlink's real-time alerts, facial recognition, and tamper detection ensure the integrity of each test so you can be confident your kids are with a sober parent. With Soberlink, judges rest assured that your child is safe, attorneys get court admissible evidence of sobriety, and both parents have empowerment and peace of mind. Pull back the curtain on the mysteries of parenting time and trust the experts in remote alcohol monitoring technology to keep you informed and your kids safe and secure. To download the resource I created with Soberlink, Divorce and Addiction, A Guide to Move Forward, visit www.soberlink.com backslash Susan. Coming up on today's episode of the Divorce and Beyond podcast. Knowledge is power. If kids have the knowledge to know, oh, somebody might be touching me or follow me, then this gives them a leg up and it just does. And so that's kind of the situation when you talk about things that I know more than other people. Yes, it's because that's right. Just like a doctor would know more things about medical things. I know with regard to sex crimes, it can happen to anyone, from anyone, any place, at any time. Hello, and welcome to the Divorce and Beyond podcast. I'm Susan Guthrie, your host. As a top divorce attorney and family law mediator for 30 years, I know what you need to know to get through your divorce, and most importantly, how to move beyond it to thrive and transition to your new future. My experts and I are here to give you the insider view into the process, so listen in for the wisdom and expert information you need on your journey through divorce and beyond. Hello, and welcome to today's podcast. I'm Susan Guthrie, your host, and today I have a special guest on a difficult topic. Um, So I do want to say at the top of this episode that there is a trigger warning. We're going to be talking about sexual abuse, abuse of children, and we will be using the appropriate terms for people's anatomy. So if you have an issue with the words penis, vagina, etc., this may not be the episode for you. But I want to welcome my guest, Stacey Honowitz. I'm I'm really honored to have you with me here today, Stacy. You are a, I, I, this word always makes it sound because somebody called me a veteran the other day, a veteran divorce attorney. You're a veteran sex crimes prosecutor. You've been doing this, I think, as long as I've been a divorce attorney, over 30 years. And, you know, so you're in that world of, uh, you know, the SVU, you are the one who's actually prosecuting the crimes that people have been watching for years on television. But, you know, you and I talked and had a, a pre, uh, taping interview and, you know, you've seen, I've seen it all when it comes to divorce. I've seen a lot of bad behavior. I've seen people do things that are kind of incredible, but they're usually adults. You've seen, everything, including just horrific cases of what, what people will do to children. But we're here to talk about that. And you have a phrase for it. 
You call it parental malpractice. We're gonna dive into, you know, what's important to talk about when it comes to the, the abuse of children. Um, we're also though gonna touch on, cause you have some real life uh, history and experience of divorce um, yourself. But um, just a few things additionally that I would like to point out. You have three amazing books. There's one on the bully at school is really uncool. I like that one. I, bullying is one of those things. But then there's genius with a penis. There's the first penis every or second penis. Everyone, <laughs> don't don't touch. And then my privates are private. So three books for kids, I think. Yes, for kids and really for adults too, because you would be surprised to know that a lot of adults say to me, I don't know how to break the ice. I don't know how to talk to my kids. So really that's why I wrote the books because they would come into my office and say, I know it's a difficult topic, but I, I just don't know what to say. So the books were written so that the parents can sit with the child, you know, the first time around and, and break the ice about this difficult, but really necessary subject matter. Such an important point right there because everybody thinks about the sex talk, right? And in fact, I was just thinking as you said that about the book, I believe my mother sat down with a book when she had the sex. <laughs> my mom's a nurse, yet she still sat down with a book that was like Una the ovum and Sammy the sperm and talked about everything. Right. And your books really give parents a way to open the door to these topics that need to be talked about, but are so often skipped over glossed over or just not had at all because they're so difficult. So we'll touch on the books, but before we even dive into your experience as a sex crimes prosecutor, you also have an interesting backstory on your own divorce and what you've been through with that. So I thought we'd start there because my listeners always are a, you know, love to hear about other people's stories as they go through divorce. And I know you and I had some similarities when you're an attorney going through a divorce, there's always uh, an interesting uh, juxtaposition of being in the client chair instead of in the attorney chair. Absolutely. I, you know, I think what also was very interesting is although I'm an attorney for a very long time, when you are hit with a divorce and you didn't see it coming, which what happened was what happened in my situation uh, your divorce hat kind of goes out in the very beginning you become an emotional wreck which i'm sure a lot of your listeners feel that way and kind of the divorce the divorce punch in the face uh kind of takes over the lawyer part comes about once you hire a lawyer and you're going through the motions the depositions the the, the legal process but in the very beginning, um, just like a lot of other women, I was shocked, I was surprised, I was appalled, I didn't know. I was older, I was 42 when I got married, and I was 46 when I had my daughter. And so here I am, an older woman, you know, to say, and he's divorcing me. And so I think that just like everybody else, I ran the gamut of emotions. I threw myself on the floor. I cried. I mean, I guess the best part about it was I lost a significant amount of weight. So I looked good. I felt horrible, but I looked good for, you know, for going through a bad thing. And so once I retained an attorney, which of course, as an attorney, everyone starts calling you, you start going through your, men, your, your Rolodex of people that you know. And uh, I got a lawyer and I still had a difficult time. I mean, it's not easy. It is not an easy process. I still had to work. 
Um, I was working full time. I had an infant at home. He was off gallivanting without a care in the world. I mean, you know, it didn't matter to him. Um, and here I am sitting in a corner kind of in fetal position saying, what do I do and where do I go? And, and, and the next day I, I really had to pick myself up. I was in a, I was driving the car and I, you're in kind of a fog. I had an accident. Uh, I remember not being able to call him because I knew he really wouldn't care. And I know I'm rambling on, but I'm trying to really uh, remember that it was a very difficult time, but here to tell your listeners that you do get through it and you do come out, it's a cliche on the other side. And you do take a look back and you say, it sucked, excuse my language. Oh no. It was happening. Yeah. We're going deeper than that on the language. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was really shitty when I was going through it. Um, but, um, I'm here to tell your, to tell everybody that, uh, it, it, it's okay. It will, this too shall pass at some point. Yeah. Well, exactly. And that's why the podcast is divorce and beyond, uh, yeah. you know, but I, I think that's a significant factor for people to hear. I've said it before, you know, it's no easier when you are an attorney to go through the legal process of a divorce. I am a divorce attorney, but had a divorce attorney representing me. Mm -hmm. I uh, still remember some of the crazy things I thought, said, and did during that time. So, you know, give yourself some grace and some space and some uh, self-care during this time because anyone and everyone finds it difficult. Um, I don't know anyone who doesn't. But so, well, let's, let's dive in now to this career because this has really been your career. This has been your, it has to take up a significant amount of space in your life to be a sex crimes prosecutor. And I remember getting out of law school and, you know, I worked on Wall Street for a little while and I did a little of this and I did a little personal injury and I did a little criminal law, ran screaming from the courthouse with just like DUI. So I didn't anticipate ending up in family law. Did you always know sex crimes prosecution was where you were headed? Well, I went directly to the DA's office right from law school. You know, my my mother always said to me, I really wanted to be a dentist and I just sucked in math but my mom always said listen you've got such a fresh mouth for me why don't you go open it up in a courtroom and tell somebody else and i really really got me thinking i knew i was good at arguing i knew i was good at being um persuasive about certain things so i went directly to the da's office and you start doing county court misdemeanor things and when the sex crimes prosecutors would come into the courtroom i found it fascinating I really did. I would read the police reports and I found it fascinating. And I knew that that was going to be my road in the DA's office. And once I got there, I really found that I kind of had a niche. I, I was I was good with the kids. I was able to sit down on the floor with them and talk to them and kind of relate to them. And I just kind of found my way. And it really did become, it has become, it is still a passion. Not everybody has the stomach for it. And we do see a lot of turnover in our unit. We had, um, you know, some guys in our unit that just said, I can't, I can't talk about penises and vaginas and ejaculation and all those things, excuse me, but that that's the reality of it all day long. But for me, the reward in, in dealing with these cases and the suffering that I see that these kids go through and knowing that I have the ability to kind of draw it out of them when some people can't, um, is what keeps me in it. Not to say that I haven't become a wackadoodle-do because this does it to you. I am overly anxious. 
My daughter said, if you tell me one more time, if you say to me one more time, if someone touches you, she probably knew, you know, in the delivery room, <laughs> having the doctor touch, you know, don't touch her. But I mean, you know, it becomes, you know, a, a fabric of your life. I mean, because I'm dealing with it, these horrific cases day in and day out. When you see these big cases on TV, that's what draws people's attention. And I want to tell your audience that I see hundreds of cases that don't make the news, that don't aren't in a fishbowl. And those are the cases that I deal with every single day. So to get back to your original question, I'm like on autopilot. I was I kind of fell in love with this kind of law and I've continued to stick it out. So yes, I saw the direction I was heading in. And I stayed on that path. You you have. I mean, this is what you do day in and day out. You, I didn't mention at the beginning, but you've been on pretty much every news show in the country and in other countries, um, CNN, MSNBC, Good Morning America, Headline News, you name it, Larry King Live. I mean, you've been on everything talking about those big, you know, headline cases, but what you know and what you understand is that these things are happening, these crimes against children, these sex abuse situations happen every single day in the most innocuous of circumstances. You described to me that, you know, when we, we had our pre-interview talk about children not going to the bathroom at school by themselves, which I really honest, hadn't, hadn't occurred to me as an issue. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I, you know, look, I, I am, uh, I don't want to say jaded, but I know a lot of things that other parents would not know or would really not think about. This was in preschool. This is the story that I told you is that my daughter, when she was in preschool, I asked the teacher, I said, who takes them to the bathroom? I mean, they're three and four years old. And she said, what are you talking about? They go by themselves. Well, if you wanted to see someone go into apoplexy right then and there, the teacher probably thought, get, get her out. I just can't deal. I said, go to the bathroom by themselves. What are you talking about? They're three and four years old. She said, well, they go in the buddy system. I said, so let me ask you this. If my kid is, God forbid, being molested, is the other three-year-old supposed to protect her? Are you kidding me? And she said, well, that's, you know, they can't interrupt and the teacher can't take them. I said, well, then I guess she will not be attending. And then I said to my daughter, I said, listen, I want to tell you something right now. And I went, you know, I went higher up, of course. And I told the school, this, this can't be. You have to think about these things, things that you would never think. But we're on a first floor of a school. You just don't have teachers and students. You have caterers, janitors, people that come in, maintenance crews. Everybody and their mother can be on that first floor and follow a little kid into a bathroom. This is not to freak your listeners out. This is just something for them to think about. And so I said to my daughter, I said, if you raise your hand and say that you have to go to the bathroom and the teacher tells you to go yourself and you really have to go, you are to go to the bathroom in your pants. I said, you are not to go to the bathroom by yourself. And that's it. You are to have an adult take you. And if they tell you that they can't take you, you tell them, we'll call my mother because I have to go home. I mean, because I, like I said, I have been around this. I have seen molestations happen in places that you would never think about. Molestations happen when a grandfather is waiting outside of the bathroom and his kid is inside. And so this all ties in because knowledge is power. If kids have the knowledge to know 
oh, somebody might be touching me or follow me, then this gives them a leg up and it just doesn't. So that's kind of, you know, the, the situation when you talk about things that I know more than other people. Yes, it's because that's what I, just like a doctor would know more things about medical things. I know with regard to sex crimes, it can happen to anyone, from anyone, any place, at any time. I mean, that's really the, the basis of it. Yeah, well, and I think your point is so you know good because it's really two types of awareness. It's the awareness of parents that it could happen, as you say, it, but to anyone, by anyone, in any place, at any time. But then it's also an awareness on the part of the children so that they know that they're, you know, stranger, danger, whatever you want to call it, but that they know and that they know what to do, you know, not every, you know, to call, please call my mom, I need to go home or whatever that might be to do. So, you know, one of your you know, basic premises is that, you know, it's parental malpractice, I think, not to make your children aware because you're, you're leaving them vulnerable. Yeah, listen, it's a very strong term, and I'm sure that I will get pushback on it because a lot of parents think to themselves, don't tell me how to parent my kid. I know that for a fact, I'm a parent. Sometimes if somebody tells me something, well, you should have punished her for that. I feel like saying, well, go off, it's not your kid, you know? So I know that parents will have a difficult time with it. The reason why I do make it strong and I phrase it that way is because I have seen so many cases where I've said to the parents, did you ever discuss with your daughter, with your son, what to do if God forbid they're touched or if they're in that position or they feel like they're being groomed, which is a term meaning that someone is kind of leading up and, 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 and gaining the child's trust in an effort to perform a sexual act on them. And the parents would say to me, oh, I'm so scared. No, I didn't talk about it. Well, if you don't talk about it, then a child doesn't know. I, the best example that I can give is I'm sure plenty of people watched the elite gymnasts who won five gold medals. They're brilliant girls, they're elite gymnasts, they stand out, they're gold medal, they're Olympians. I want you to know that Simone Biles or one of the girls gave an interview and she said, I wish I would have known what sexual abuse was. Now this is an educated athlete who's saying, I did not know what sexual abuse was. I take that example because if they didn't know, how do you think a three or a four-year-old is going to know that if someone touches them in their vagina or on their penis and says, it's okay, it's because I love you and it's a right, that they don't think it's okay because that's what they learn. That's what they hear. As opposed to if someone does touch you there, you need to report it. An adult no, and not even an adult, another kid cannot touch you in your private parts. And so I call it malpractice because in the back of my mind, I think it is malpractice. I think if you're a parent, I think you owe your children a duty to warn them, to tell them, to teach them, to educate. Just like the same thing if you tell them, you can't take drugs, you can't smoke. I mean, you hear these things, say no to drugs, say no to drugs. It's different with sexual abuse because you got to know to report it. Yeah. If they want to take drugs voluntarily because they want to test the waters and they want to see and they want to get high or they want to get drunk, they have voluntarily decided, this is what I want to do. If a kid is sexually abused, it's not by choice. They didn't tell the adult, come touch me, come have sex with me. The predator took advantage. And that's why I label it parental malpractice. That's really the, the, the 
It's over years of seeing parents tell me, oh, I don't need to talk about it. Right. Oh, you know, they, they just inherently oh. know a three-year-old. Yeah, they're learning about it. It's past the buck. Uh, somebody in school and sex education will teach them about it. You know, it's always kind of like, let the other guy do it. It's tough. Uh, listen, Susan, it is water cooler talk for me. I'm around it. I talk about it all day long. For the average person, I get it. But guess what? If you sat down and had a 10-minute conversation just in the beginning, it's, it might save you a trip to the state attorney's office. I mean, a visit with you. You know, right? I mean, you know, a visit with me and five years of litigation and having to talk about it and whatever. And that's what I think has to be in the back of parents' minds. And that's why I wrote the books to make it easy. It's so easy. Well, it's it's made easier, I would imagine, by the books. I it really sticks out to me something that you just said there was, you know, a parent who has not spoken about these topics with a child to say this is not okay. But the abuser will often in many of these situations say to the child, oh, it's okay, it's because I love you. And so think about that. The child has nothing to, to measure that against because they've not heard, no, it's not okay. And they're hearing from this person, it is okay. So I think that's something I had never even thought of, but you have to lay the groundwork for your child to have an understanding of what is okay and what is not okay. Sexual predators are master manipulators. They've been able to do this because they manipulate the child. You can manipulate in many ways. You can say, I love you. I want to help you. You know, we see a lot of the cases, and I hate to say it, but, you know, sometimes there are a lot of single mothers that are involved because they want to bring kind of somebody in and they don't realize that this person sometimes is attracted to them in an effort to get to the child. And so they will say to that to that mother, I will drive them here, I'll take them here, all the things you couldn't afford to buy them, I will buy them, I will do. And this becomes an effort to gain the child's trust in the hopes that the kid will never tell if, they abuse, if an abuser decides to abuse them, why would the child tell? I've done all these things for him. And so that's one type of manipulation. The other type of manipulation is if you tell anybody, I'm going to hurt you, I'm going to hurt your family, no one's going to believe you, just go along with it, it's okay. So there's so many different ways that these predators play on children that parents need to kind of set up various scenarios. If I had to go through every scenario that I've seen in 30 plus years, the book would be 250 pages long right. because I would have to go through every single one of my police reports. Well, the predator did this to this kid and the predator did it. My books just kind of open the door to if here's what can happen. If it does, please report it. I, these books are not meant to prevent sexual abuse. If I had that kind of power, believe me, I'd be a gazillionaire. They're not they're not, and I'm hardly in the state attorney's office a gazillion. <laughs> they're just to let kids know, give them some knowledge. And if they are touched, if it does happen to them, that they're not repeat victims. Because even if it happens that one time, they've told to put an end to it. Because so many of these cases, that's what happens. It goes on from the kids four till the kid is 12. And then something forces them to disclose what happened. As opposed to four it happened. They read that book. They mommy told me no one's allowed to touch me. And they go and they tell. And then an investigation. It's it's complicated. I get it. It's tough. This stuff is so hard. It's not easy. Um, but it's so necessary. How do I know it's necessary? Open the newspaper every single day. Yeah. 
Well, every single day. Hey, listeners, I'm just taking a quick break to make sure that you know about a few other ways you can enjoy Divorce and Beyond and get more information and insider tips from me. First, did you know that each episode is available in video format on the Divorce and Beyond podcast YouTube channel? There are no ads, no interruptions there, so you can watch the full episodes. You can also get more content from me on my Instagram feed. I'm on there every day, all day. Um, So go ahead and follow me at at Susan Guthrie ESQ. And finally, the podcast has a blog and resources in addition to all the episodes and the videos on the website. So go check that out at divorceandbeyondpod.com. While you're there, sign up for the newsletter and you're going to get all of this content right in your inbox. Stay tuned for more from my conversation with Stacey Honowitz, SVU prosecutor and author on the tough topic of parental malpractice and how to protect your kids from sexual abuse. Let kids know, give them some knowledge, and if they are touched, it does happen to them that they're not repeat victims because even if it happens that one time, they've told to put an end to it because so many of these cases, that's what happens. It goes on from the kid's four till the kid is 12, and then something forces them to disclose what happened as opposed to four, it happened, they read that book, they mommy told me, no one's allowed to touch me, and they go and they tell, and then an investigation. If you're finding this episode helpful, be sure to check out last week's episode with special guest Bella Duncan, a kid with two homes, to hear her inside story about how divorce really affects your kids. At the age of 18, though, uh, I was really feeling the pressure of being a kid with two homes in a high-conflict situation. And I said, enough is enough. I can't do this anymore. This is too much, too much pressure, too much responsibility, too much stress. And it was taking away so much from my life and my ability to focus on my goals. I said to my parents, hey, we've got to, we've got to work this out. You know, it might seem not too bad in your worlds, but it, it's just overwhelming in mine. And now we return to today's show. Something to note for most parents is, you know, we're, we think of child sexual abuse as the scary stranger in the shadows perpetrating, you know, abuse on a child. But what you're pointing out are long-standing situations where children are repeatedly abused over a number of years by someone who has access. Trusted family friend, new boyfriend in the household. We've all heard the priest cases and the, you know, you were, you prosecuted um, the case that started the Larry Nasser, that entire scandal and, and f- finally coming unraveled. But I, I'm curious, can you explain for listeners? So a somebody, it's, it would, I would imagine, usually be a parent making uh-huh. a complaint to the police or calling the police that the child has said something has happened. What happens at that point? Yeah, people always want to know, so what's the process? How did it get from A to Z? Right. So what happens is we have a, what's called a disclosure, and there could be an accidental disclosure, which I'll explain that, or an intentional one. Accidental one, for instance, I had a case where six-year-old and three, uh, six and four, they were in the bathtub together. And the six-year-old said to the four-year-old, remember when we lived at 4242 Mockingbird Lane? I, I think that's the Munsters or whatever. <laughs> it was an address. Yes. And the little one said, oh, I remember. That's an Uncle Herbie 
gave me a cookie because I sucked his woo-woo. First of all, the terminology, that's another issue that we can discuss. And the, the six-year-old said, what? And she said, I got a cookie because I sucked his woo-woo. And she went and she told the six-year-old had been educated. She went and she told the mother. The mother then called the police. The police then interviewed the child. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to go back to that. And then that's how the prosecution started. That's, so we're going to talk about two things. That's an accidental disclosure because nobody asked the child questions. Did anyone ever touch you? She accidentally, she disclosed it. So what happens from there? So the police are then contacted. They're contacted and they're said, listen, I have a report. So-and-so abused my child. And what, what happens? The police have, just like they have special victims prosecutors, they have special victim detectives. Why is that important? Because if you have somebody that's just on the road that just became a police officer, they don't know how to really talk to a child. Maybe they have their own kids, but they don't need to, without leading, asking kind of significant questions or even developing a rapport. You can't have, I'll never forget, I remember a judge that talking about rapport. I brought a, a six or seven year old into the courtroom or my, my partner did. And the judge said, do you know that it's unlawful to bear false, the kid's six years old, to bear false witness against your, like, I didn't even know what the hell he was saying. Can you imagine a six-year-old? So what I'm saying is language is very important. So that's why you need special detectives to be able to do this. The child is then interviewed. They are interviewed on camera. Years ago, we didn't have this body-worn camera. We didn't have tapes. We just had somebody transcribing what they said. Now, thank God, with the advent of technology, we get to see the child on tape. We get to see mannerisms. We get to see how they handle themselves. How, what, if they're asked the questions, if it's a direct, just like in anything else, if there's a direct answer. And from there, we build a case. That's what we do. Did the child tell anybody else that we can interview? Is there a medical examination that needs to be done? This was a delayed report for, for a year. So we know that medically, we're not going to be able to get that. Guess what? Doesn't make a difference. Doesn't make a difference. Sometimes we're lucky enough, we have medical evidence, we have injuries, we have DNA, we have sperm, we have saliva, we've got a torn hymen, we've got things that you would think in a rape case are so important. In these child rape cases with a delay, you don't always see that. Now, in this case, we got very lucky in the sense that the defendant was interviewed, he waived his rights and he confessed, he fully confessed. And so we were lucky we had a confession. In other cases, the same thing happens. A complaint is made, the police are called out. Child Protective Services is called out to see whether or not the child has to be removed from a household if it's a parent. But we built a case just like everything you, I don't want to see on TV because it's very fake on TV. You're not finding a piece of hair from 28 years ago under a carpet that matched the perpetrator that sat in the court with the veil over her head. I mean, you know, it just doesn't happen like that. But sometimes we are lucky enough to get the person, get the child to the sexual assault treatment center, do a forensic examination, get the medicals, get a statement, get a statement from somebody they might have told, and that's how you build a case. Why the books and everything else ties in is because of this. If you have a delayed report, I don't have evidence. That's the thing. If you tell right away, I'm, I can get evidence. If you tell me four years later, what do I have? I have your word. And it's happened and they've told several people. I've had cases from years ago. Um, it, but, but evidence is crucial. And so a delay in the report kind of takes that away, which feeds into the reason why it's so important to talk to your kids about it so that evidence doesn't, you don't lose it.
You have it right there to present to a jury. Right. And, you know, and that it doesn't continue to happen, you know, as you pointed out earlier. So, so, you know, that brings to mind for me because I have uh, in my career, I've had a few cases where parents have made uh, allegations during heated custody battles that the other parent um, has been sexually or has sexually abused the children. In one of those cases, that, that was believed to be true after investigation, as you just pointed out. But in all of the other cases, they it was found to not be true, that it was something that um, had been fabricated. So. What happens, one, I assume you've seen this both in both directions. Yes. What happens when somebody makes false allegations? Well, it's very interesting. I, I, I have seen it. I know, and I know you know as a divorce attorney, you know, when you're, when you're wrapped up in this emotional roller coaster of a divorce and kids are in the middle of it and mom doesn't want the child to go to dad's house because dad doesn't do the things the way mom does and Dad hates mom, so he alleges physical abuse with the mother. We have seen it, and we are thankfully able to flush it out, you know, before it gets to a point where there are false allegations. But we have told the parents, if we find out that the allegation is false, you could be prosecuted. You could be prosecuted for neglect, for perjury, if you've made a sworn statement under oath. Have I seen a lot of that? No. Have I seen the family law judge admonish the other partner when, in fact, an investigation comes back as false. Um, yes, I have not in my in, in in the state attorney's office. I have not seen one parent be prosecuted for making false allegations. I have seen not false. I have seen allegations of neglect. If let's say one party knows that something is going on, and and believe it or not, in some cases, if dad is giving mom money and keeping a roof over her head, and she kind of thinks maybe the kid is being abused. Uh, you know, it goes on. The, the the worst case scenarios have gone on. That mother can be prosecuted for neglect. So it's a very tricky situation. I have not seen a ton of it, but I have seen some because it's such a tricky, it's just, it, it's a terrible allegation to me. Horrible. It is yeah. just the worst possible allegation that you can make. It's flushed through because the child will say that didn't happen. I don't, I don't know what you're saying. Dad never touched me or mom never beat me. I don't know where you're getting that from. And so we get that. We don't, we have a lack of physical evidence, medical evidence, and the child saying that it didn't happen. Has it happened before? Of course it has. There has been scenarios where mom knows dad has been abusing the child and the child will say, I don't want to go to dad's house because dad is abusing me. So it's a tricky horrible situation the false allegations if you ever make an allegation like that that's the worst possible allegation because not only is it false but then you're you're stripping the child away from the parent i mean it's just a myriad of it's like the domino effect that takes place yeah i mean i in no way want to imply that if that allegation comes out during a divorce case it's not true because it ha it, it certainly can yes. be true and in fact I've had the one case where I had where I had that situation where it was true. That was what occasioned the divorce. When mom found out, that was you know that was the end of that relationship. Obviously, I'm glad that you brought that up. Excuse me for one second because when I talked about like mom knowing that the abuse is, is going on because financially she's kind of set, you know, getting getting money and we can charge her with neglect. I'm happy to say I'm thrilled to say that when one parent knows 
that these allegations are are true, that they follow through with a divorce. You know what I'm saying? I mean, lots of times I have those cases where the well, I love him and he's paying for me, and and it only happened one time. I mean, you see such a a um a myriad of cases that I strongly urge all of your listeners that if you know that abuse is going on, number one, you have a duty to report it. That's the first thing, especially here in Florida. If you know an adult that's abusing a child, it's mandatory reporting. It used to be just for doctors, psychologists. It's mandatory for everybody now. And um, to take the necessary steps to get that child out of danger. It should be a law in every state that if anyone knows a child is being abused, that they have to tell um, and they have to report. But, you know, one of the other questions that I had, and I thought about this because I had recently uh, my friend Christina McGee on, she's a parenting expert, and we were talking Mm -hmm. in that situation about having the conversation with your kids about the fact that the parents are getting divorced, that mom and dad or mom and mom and dad and dad are getting divorced. You know, one of her points was that it's not a one and done conversation, that oh. as your children grow and age throughout their lives, really, there's ongoing conversations to be had. And I would assume, because you've talked about a children as young as three, you know, in preschool, but needing to have a conversation, you talk to your daughter. I assume that this is a conversation that you need to be having with your children at varying levels as they age. I always tell parents, because I do go out and lecture, I'm not, and and disclaimer, I'm not a parenting expert. I want people to know that I, because I they take, you know, they are in a different category. But I do tell parents, listen, this is not a one and done. This is, this is the start of the conversation that continues. That's why I told you, I get the eye rolls all the time. Like, I, you told me a million times, I know. You want them to get to that level where they can't stand you talking about it because it's kind of embedded in their mind. It's just embedded. I always tell parents, you know, what's interesting. You know, we talk about like, I don't want to scare kids, but if there is a case in the news or in the newspaper, it's a teaching moment. You can say, look, this was a horrible case of sexual abuse. And I want to tell you, it was a teacher abusing a child. It was a coach abusing a child. It was a father abusing a child. Let's talk about it a little bit. And so you can always, always piggyback onto something else that's happening and make it a teachable moment. And you do. You don't at three years old just discuss it. You discuss it at three, at four, because they're they're having different experiences. At three, they're not going to after school activities. They're three years old. They're coming home. They're sitting in the kitchen. They're you know they're, they're playing with the dog or whatever. Six, seven, or eight, maybe they start soccer. Parents want to get them involved. I think it's fabulous. But guess what? You're involving them in activities that now have strangers attached to it. What am I talking about? The coach, the new parent that maybe wants to, the Girl Scout leader, the Boy Scout leader. So you have to be able to say, hey, listen, now you're going to soccer. And I want to tell you something. If the coach decides that, you know, he wants to take you for ice cream afterwards, or he starts calling, these are all things. He starts calling you, sending you gifts, wants to spend time, wants to do all these things. That, the, you know what, Susan, I know I get ahead of myself, but it all does intertwine. You want to talk about the situation, and then you also want to, as a parent, kind of see some signs, because some parents don't see this. They, oh, isn't that great? The coach wants to take him out Saturday, Sunday. The coach wants to take him to the movies. The coach bought him some gifts. The coach wants to, you got to ask questions if you see that. I think it's wonderful if a, somebody takes an interest in your child. I think it's wonderful. It's a different story when it becomes suspicious 
And you have to be smart enough to ask questions. Is everything okay? Is there something going on? Does he ever make any kind of advances? And you just, he's the coach, you don't want to report him. You must ask. You must. You have to be an annoying pain in the ass. They will tell you, fuck off. I don't want to, excuse me, sorry. No, no, they can handle it. I I gave them a warning. (laughs) Right, like, oh, fuck, I'll leave you the fuck alone. You've told me 15 times the coach isn't touching me. Okay, okay. I just, I saw something on the news. I'm a sex crimes prosecutor. You know, I'm a parent. I'm concerned. For me, it's double, double, double. But these are all lessons for parents. Open your eyes, open your ears, listen, observe. Don't think that everything is just so fabulous because this person has taken it. There can be an ulterior motive. How do I know this? I have prosecuted teachers, coaches. I prosecuted Jim, the gym coach, who that led to one of the cases that led to NASA USA Today did this whole thing on it. I've seen a radio, a, a, a um, had a horrible case. Not a radiologist, the ultrasound technician, right. the the expert technician, who liked boys, and anytime a boy was in, he would pretend to be the doctor and come in and feel them and touch and touch for hernias, and you know he was. And he, and he volunteered as a big brother. He means it all. He said that his grandson was autistic so we could teach at the autistic school. I mean, we have to be on board. We have to be more aware. I know that a lot of parents don't want to think about it, don't want to know from it. I'm here to tell you, it does exist. And guess what else? It's not black, it's not white, it's not Catholic, it's not Jewish or Latin. It's anyone, and it's not fat, it's not thin. Anyone can be a victim and anyone can be a perpetrator. Look at the priest. Happens with the rabbi. I had a rabbi that I prosecuted. You know, it it really sex abuse knows no boundaries. That's the scary part of it. Someone said to me once, can you give us a profile of a sex offender? I said, no, I can't. I wish. And how do you know that? You wish. Because when the newspaper opens and your neighbor down the street got arrested, you go, oh my God, he was the nicest guy. I would never have thought it. You know, and that's that's our initial reaction. There's some that you say, oh, right off the bat, you go, oh, yeah, I think he's a little bit of a problem. But it's not like you said. It's not the guy with the funny glasses and the van and the trench coat that opens it up and says, look at my penis. Yeah, those guys are out there too, by the way. Those guys are out there too. That's why I said, though, you just got to be cautious. I don't want to freak everyone out. I just want them to learn and to listen and say, hey, you know, I, I, you know, I never thought about that. Maybe I should find out if my three-year-old goes to the bathroom by herself. You don't want to be the one afterwards that said the janitor followed her in. And this is not, I'm just saying, you know, I'm just using an example and, you know, touch the kid. That's the whole point, right? The awareness. That's why we're talking about it. That's why you wrote the books because you just said, um, you know, you want parents to open their eyes and open their ears. You want them to open their mouths as well. You know, and that's what is so uh, of such critical importance here. And I think, it's one of those situations where honestly you can turn on the news almost any day and see something where a person who is in a position, um, you know, you said it earlier, predators are smart and they're wily and they, they figure out ways to get access to victims. You described that one gentleman who pretended his grandson was autistic. I mean, they, people will go to extreme lengths to get access to children. And so that awareness and that understanding that it could be anyone, anywhere, at any time is how you can start to keep your children safe. And by talking about it, as uncomfortable as it might be, it's an important thing to do. Yeah, and Susan, one other thing that I wanted to bring up that is so important because we've talked really about the younger kids. Yeah. 
I want to talk about the use of the computer because that in and of itself is, is we are seeing so many of those cases, girls 13, 14, and 15. Listen, parents that are listening, I know that they're not going to let you go on their computer, but this is the talk that you need to have. Who are you talking to? Do you know the person that you're talking to? Do you realize that people lie when they go on the computer? On Insta- on any platform, their age, what they do. Please warn your children. Do not give out any personal information where they go to school, where mom works, where dad works, what their address is. All of these things are so crucial. Also, if somebody makes promises to you over the computer, I know you are fighting with your mom and so she won't buy you the latest Jordans. I'll pick you up. I'll buy them for you. I'll take you here. And I, we have seen an onslaught of these gr- women, not as much boys, girls leaving the house after they met somebody on Instagram, traveling with them, going with them, getting sexually abused by them. So the computer plays a huge role. It's a double-edged sword. It's fabulous. I mean, after all, we all use it and it's evil in, in, in the way. So please, those of you that are listening, I, I know the kids are playing a lot of games. Yeah, the phones, all of everything, the phone, any device, there's no real regulation. And so anybody can get on, get in a game, start talking to your kid, ask them, question them, tell them, show them the news. There's going to be a case where somebody left their house, went with the guy that they met on Instagram and and, and was sexually abused and God forbid killed. So, you know, we, we I say to these girls when I have these cases, this is, a, this is horrible. How could you have done this? What are you doing? And then I say, but thank God you're here to talk about it because it could have been a worse scenario. And you've seen those too. Yeah. I know these girls, sometimes they feel wanted and loved because at school they're getting bullied. Ergo, the bully book that I wrote, because I saw how it all tied in. I saw, I saw these girls that were bullied in school, had no self-confidence, 13 and 14, saw their girlfriends on Instagram, posing, big boobs, bikinis, well, you know, guys, to, and they got some attention from somebody on the computer. And so it made them feel better. So they went and they did it. And it all stemmed from the fact that they were bullied because of their looks or or how they were, that this, this was kind of a self-esteem thing that somebody was reaching out to them, unbeknownst to them that they're reaching out in an effort to abuse them and to be a predator. So everything ties in. Everything, bullying can tie into sexual abuse, you know, fighting with your parents can turn into turning to a stranger. I mean, we've seen some, some awful things. We live in a different world. You know, I used to walk to school and didn't have a telephone and didn't think twice about it. And and now you really do have to be cognizant of of what's going on and the surroundings. And that's why I say, I don't like to, I'm not a sugar coder. I'm just not. When I lecture, I tell parents, I'm not going to tell you, you know, tell your kid about, you know, no, guess what? (laughs) Open the newspaper and tell your kid, this is what can fucking happen to you. If you, if you don't play by the rules. Uh, Well, I mean, I actually read a case not that long ago. Um, You were talking about Instagram. It was one of the video games, but a lot of those video games have chat function. Yeah. And it was somebody who had lured a child through the chat function on one of those video games. So honestly, parents, these, yes, the phones and, and our access to the internet and the world has been increased, but it also means that all of the world has access to your child through it. So you have to have the conversations with the children, not just about the people that they come in contact with 
physically every day, but the people that are coming at them through all different, you know, sources because they will reach out, they will entice children and, you know, they, and they know how to do it. You said it earlier in this interview, and I think it's just so important. They're really smart and they're really crafty and they know how to, you know, worm their way in. They know. Yeah. I, and I think what's really important I is because we're, we're divorced and beyond, and we're talking, you know, the, the stepping stone to all this, of course, is divorce. That's the, I think that parents that are going through a divorce, they have to be on the same page with this. In other words, the father can't say, oh, mom's just crazy. And she's just telling you all these things. And don't forget, dad and mom, even if you're divorced, the most important thing, as we've always, always said, is the child and the best interest of the child. On something like this, you might disagree about letting your kid get the most expensive toy. Oh, no, I'm not. But when it comes to something like this, you got to be on the same page. You got to be able to say, dad, you need to, when, when the child is with the dad, the dad has to say, listen, your mom is, you know, sexual abuse, you've got to be careful. And mom, you can't say, oh, dad's too crazy. Just kind of be on the same page. I know it's difficult. Look, I don't have a relationship uh, with, with my ex-husband at all. He's no relationship with my daughter. Um, and so, but I know that there are some fabulous divorces and some shitty, really, really bad divorces. And even as it's shitty as they are, if the child goes between two parents, then please with this, get on the same page about this. Well, and, and put your children first, right? I always say you've got to love your children more than you hate your ex. It's, it's really, their safety is, is of the utmost importance. But, you know, to your point as well, if your ex is not on board and is not messaging properly, that does not mean that you can't be the parent, the sane parent, the parent who is cautioning your children and making them aware. Your children are better off with one parent who is at least you know, on board and, and protecting them than with two parents who are turning a blind eye to the dangers of the world. So Stacy, thank you so much. I, I know, you know, this is something that you talk about and experience and work with and, and work to find justice for the victims day in and day out. But I appreciate your coming on to talk about it because as difficult as this is to talk about, it is absolutely imperative for the safety of our children that we do. So thank you for all that you've done please let um everyone know where they can find the books and find out more about you okay well thank you susan for for bringing this topic because a lot of people don't want to talk about it so i appreciate you uh, you know subjecting your list letting them have this this kind of knowledge my books are all on amazon genius with a penis don't touch i mean the bullying book and my privates are private it's all in limerick form so it makes it really easy because i think kids remember nursery rhymes and i think Talking about this subject, I didn't want to do a how-to with an instruction booklet, and so I kind of made it easy. And my website, stacyhonowitz.com. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. If anybody wants to get in touch with me, feel free. I'll give my address out. Don't ever give your address to anybody. <laughs> ever. <laughs> No, definitely not. But actually follow Stacy on Instagram. I'll put obviously everything in the show notes, but she has the most adorable little doggy that she posts pictures of. So we've been bonding over that because I we are, they're not the same type of dog, but they look slightly similar. So we've been enjoying yeah. that. Thank you again, Stacy. I really appreciate your coming on the show. Thank you for joining me today on the Divorce and Beyond podcast. 
I hope you found some information and inspiration to help you on this journey. Please join me every Monday at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time for a new episode. And if you like the show, please take the time to subscribe and leave me a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find more information on the website at divorceandbeyondpod.com where you'll find links to the YouTube channel, transcripts of the episodes, and other bonus content. So I'll see you next week to help you move through your divorce and beyond. Thank you.